0: Today uh, is our final um, sermon on our statement of faith, um, these core things that we believe uh, as a church, that unite us together as a church. Um, we, and today we've um, come to the last uh, topic of the end times. Um, this is what our statement says. It says, uh, Jesus Christ will return to judge everyone. Um, unrepentant sinners will face eternal punishment and his people will be raised to live with him forever in his new kingdom. Um, This is not an easy word, and it can be a confronting statement. It might give rise to many questions, and so today we'll unpack what this means. Um, So let's pray for God's help. Lord, lift our eyes to the glories contained in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thinking about the future can either excite you or trouble you. Um, Significant milestones in life um, can cause us to think about what lies ahead. Um, So when we graduate, when we finish um, high school or uni, we look forward to the future with, with excitement about a future career or job. Um, when we get into relationships, we start to anticipate life together and in marriage and starting a family. Um, or maybe when you retire, you look forward to traveling and cruises. Or, so some reason, everyone's doing this now planning a trip to Israel um, as you think about life without having to work. Um, but there are also certain life events. Um, that might fill your thoughts of the future with trouble and uncertainty. Uh, I saw one of my friends recently who had just placed his father into palliative care. And with that news for him, brought on a whole different set of questions about the future that often we don't want to think about. Um, Questions like, what will life be like without them? and of course, what happens when we die. When events like these happen, your mind can't help but go to the future. And they confront us to think about the end. Where are we going? And does anything exist beyond this life? Um, Our lives now can just feel so busy and filled with activities that thoughts of the future can often feel a bit jarring and out of place but these are questions we can't ignore because how you live now is always shaped by what you believe about the future. The decisions you make now will be shaped by what you think lies ahead. So let me ask you, as as you think about the future, are you looking forward to it or do you dread it? Um, in Christian theology, we call a study of the future, we call it eschatology. Um, when Jesus left the earth, he, he promised he would come back, and so eschatology looks at what the end will be like when Jesus returns. Um, but it's, it's led to a lot of confusion. Uh, through the history of the church, this talk of the future has filled us with conspiracies and fear. Uh, Maybe your mind goes to world wars or natural disasters. What should we expect? Um, Even for Jesus' disciples in that passage we read, when they thought about the future, their hearts were troubled too. They knew Jesus would die, that he would depart, and so like us, their minds couldn't help to go to what lies at the end. But here, Jesus will speak about the future, not to trouble them, but to comfort them. Not that the Bible doesn't have anything tough to say about the future, but all these things will be written to prepare us so that when the end comes, we don't need to fear it. Instead, we might even long for the future to come. Uh, So that's my aim today, that as we look at what the end will be like, it'll prepare us, but also maybe excite us for what lies ahead. And we'll look at this in three aspects, um, return, judgment, and renewal. Um, First, the end of history will be defined by the return of Jesus, because Actually, as we speak about the end times, we're actually already in the end times. Um, The resurrection of Jesus is the definitive sign that the end is near. Um, In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the resurrection as the first fruits. It's the beginning of the end that signals our future resurrection too. The resurrection is the sure sign that there is life beyond the grave. This life isn't all there is. You might have heard the phrase YOLO before, you only live once. Don't use it around the step, guys, because it's actually too old now, so it's, it's only a few years old. But it's a phrase that we used to use, not anymore. It's a phrase that we used to use to justify taking risks in life or making the most of everything because this life is all there is. Um, often we base decisions, too, on this assumption that this life is all we get, so we might as well enjoy ourselves. But no, the resurrection tells us, you don't just live once, you will live forever. And so the decisions that we make in this life now, they take on an entirely different character and have implications for the future to come. In this way, the the resurrection is setting the direction of history. In in Acts chapter 1, an angel says, just as Jesus was raised as he ascended into heaven, In the same way, he'll come back. His return will be visible and physical. And when Jesus returns, Peter says, the end of the world will come. Life on this earth will pass away and new life will begin. Um, Contrary to many Hollywood movies, what will cause the end of the world is not ultimately up to us. It won't be because of a nuclear weapon. It won't be climate change. God forbid, it won't even be ChatGPT. No, the Bible says that the end of the world will be defined by the return of Christ. But when will it happen? We don't know. Maybe it'll happen in our lifetimes, maybe not. Jesus says he will return like a thief in the night, at an hour you won't expect. Paul describes Jesus' return like labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. It'll happen suddenly. Um, Because of this truth, some people have become very preoccupied in trying to work out exactly when Jesus is coming back. And so um, some have tried to match up events of the Bible with world events and tried to calculate the exact time of Christ's return but I'm telling you each time it's wrong and it'll continue to be wrong. Um, The most recent prediction was Jesus was coming back in 2021. Now it's pushed back to 2024, but that's just not how a thief operates, right? A thief won't tell you that he's coming to you in 2024. (laughs) No, if you try and work this out, you are wasting your time. No, the way to prepare for Christ's return isn't to work out when it's gonna happen, but it's to always be ready. Paul says himself, remember, you're not in darkness for this day to surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light. For us, the future isn't something to fear. It's something to anticipate because Jesus is coming back to bring us home. Um, When Nat and I were waiting for the arrival of um, Ellie, who's five weeks old, Um, It felt like she would just never come out. Um, We were ready to go at 36 weeks, um, but the pregnancy just kept dragging on past 40 weeks, and so lots and lots of time was spent waiting and not knowing. Uh, But the good thing was that our bags for the hospital were already packed by 36 weeks. And so in one sense, we kind of didn't need to worry about when the labor pains came because when it's time the bags were packed, we'd be out the door. In the same way, we don't need to fear Jesus' return. We we just need to have the bags ready. How? Verse 8, with the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of salvation. How can we be ready? By believing and trusting in Jesus. Just keep going faithfully in your relationship with Him because if you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you have nothing to fear of the end. One of the more controversial aspects of Christ's return is understanding the millennium. You may not have heard that term before, but Revelation 20 seems to indicate that around the time of Christ's return, there'll be this period known as the millennium, a period of 1,000 years where believers will reign with Christ. Now, of course, there could be so much we could say about this, so we're devoting a roundtable event in August to discuss it, so please come along to that. Um, But very briefly, there are three main views of how we understand the sequence of events. Um, If you're a premillennialist, you'll believe, you might not be able to read this, sorry, um, it's very confusing, but if you're a premillennialist, you'll believe that when Jesus returns, there'll be then a period of 1,000 years where believers will be resurrected to reign with him on earth. During that time, Satan will be bound, won't have any influence on the earth. And then after those 1,000 years, Satan will be released for a brief time, and then Jesus finally judges the world. Um, if you're a post millennialist, you'll believe the thousand years will be kind of a future golden age of peace and righteousness on the earth. and um, We'll see a large proportion of the world come to become Christians as the gospel goes out unhindered, and then Christ will return post millennial. Or maybe like me, you're an amillennialist, an amillennialist, and you'll believe that the thousand years in Revelation isn't a literal number, but Actually, we're living in the millennium right now, this age between Jesus' first and second coming. And um, the, and believers who have now died in Christ are, are reigning with him now. Um, but having said all that, regardless of what view you hold, every view agrees on the main thing, that the end of the world will be defined by the return of Jesus. Okay, so... When Jesus does come back, what will he do? Which brings us to the next point of the reality of his judgment. Um, Revelation 20 says that at the end of time, books will be opened. Um, These books are a record of everything every person has ever done and will be judged by what is written in these books. The sobering reality of the end is that this whole time, God has been keeping a record. He's been keeping a record of everything you've ever thought and said and done. And when Jesus returns, everything that is hidden in secret will come into the light. We've seen the devastating effects of sin Um, such as abuse and corruption in our world, and how easily and conveniently it can be covered up. And when we see that, our hearts cry for justice. We, We hate to see oppressors get away with it. We long to see evil brought to justice. And that is exactly what will happen at the end of time. Jesus will come to put every wrong right, and it's good news. But the truth is that we'll be included too. There'll be a day of reckoning where everything will be revealed. For all the ways we've treated people, for better or worse, all the secrets of our hearts will be made public before a holy God. Um, In 2015, um, the website Ashley Madison was hacked, um, revealing all um, personal data and information. Um, Ashley Madison was a website that connected users who wanted to have an extramarital affair with one another. Um, Ironically, the the, the slogan for the company was, life is short, have an affair. Um, But when personal information was released, it came into the light that celebrities, um, government officials, even Christian ministers were using that website. And in the future, it won't just be our website use. It won't just be our internet search histories that will be unveiled. Everything will be brought into the light. Life is short, yes, but no, the consequences from this life will last well beyond the grave. Um, in verse 13, everyone... Will be judged according to what they've done and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire on that day when christ returns god will deliver a verdict based on what we've done and for those who haven't placed their trust in jesus for salvation they'll be judged we don't like talking about hell it's a hard word But Jesus speaks of hell more than he speaks of heaven, so we can't avoid it. Um, The Bible describes hell as a place of fire, darkness, torment, this place of punishment for all the ways we've sinned against God and others. Now, these are metaphors of what hell is like, fire, darkness, torment, but that doesn't make it any better. Actually, the reality is far worse because hell is at its core the complete absence of the goodness of God. Paul describes hell as being shut out from the presence of the Lord. And if James is right that everything good comes from God, then his absence must only be darkness and chaos and despair forever. This is how um, the author, Rebecca McLaughlin describes hell. She says, If Jesus is the bread of life, losing Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, losing Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, losing Jesus means wandering and alone. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, well, losing Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of the world sacrifice for our sins, losing Jesus means paying the price ourselves. No doubt this is hard to accept. This is a hard word. But here I want you to consider a few things. First, if there is a God, then we should expect that He would punish sin. Because as humans made in the image of our Creator, when we see evil in the world, we demand justice, don't we? The yearning of of the human heart for justice is just a foretaste of a God who is perfectly just, where every wrong will be made right. So if it's right that justice should be done, the next question that we ask is, by what standard should evil be judged? And and to this point, sure, we might say, yeah, Hitler, Stalin, they deserve to be in hell." I mean, they committed genocide and mass murder, but that's a pretty loose standard. I mean, what standard should really be, should God apply? Now, if God is perfectly good and just, well, then by definition, he must judge evil by a perfectly good standard. There cannot be any compromise, no matter how big, no matter how small. Nothing can be overlooked. And so what if maybe it's not just murderers who deserve hell, but what if it's all the ways we've hurt others? To that you might say, sure, I can accept the necessity of punishment, but hell just seems a bit disproportionate, doesn't it, to the relatively small sins we commit on earth. And that's where that we need to realise that sin is fundamentally relational. When the Bible speaks about sin, it says that sin is at its core a rejection of a relationship with God. That we don't want life with Jesus. We don't want to accept his salvation and so hell is essentially God giving us what we want. When we ignore God, when we ignore his salvation, we are saying to Jesus, please leave me alone. And that is what hell is. Hell is God leaving you alone. It is his absence. You know, the reason Jesus speaks about hell more than heaven is because hell is real. And in his kindness, he wants to prepare us so that we can tell others as well that judgment is coming. Revelation says that when Jesus returns on the clouds, every eye will see him and all tribes on earth will wail on his account. In fact, the most terrifying thing of the future isn't Satan. It's not the Antichrist. It's not the mark of the beast. The most terrifying thing of the future is Jesus. Jesus. Acts 17 says God has fixed a day when he'll judge the world. It's coming. And so now we plead with you. Turn to Jesus and be saved. Even for us who have been here for a while, please let's honestly examine our hearts. Do you have a real relationship with Jesus? Because ultimately that is what's going to matter. It's why as a church we're so committed to missions. Why we? Why do we care so much about missions? It's because hell is real. As these books are opened, um, I'm not looking forward to what's written in there. I know they'll condemn me. But thankfully, another book is opened, called the Book of Life, and in this book are all the names of those who've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Even as all these previous books contain our deeds, good and bad, it's ultimately the book of life that will save us. And because of the book of life, all our sins, all, our fail, all the ways we've hurt others will be revealed as forgiven sins, sins that have already been covered by the blood of the Lamb. And this is the remarkable truth that for believers in Jesus, our judgment won't be working out the extent of our punishment, but they will work out the extent of our reward. Isn't that incredible? On judgment day, for those who are in Christ, God will delight to bestow honor and reward on sinners that have been saved by his grace. Dane Ortland says that when we that we think that the default destiny of all people should be heaven. And that hell is reserved for the wicked. But in truth, our default destiny is actually hell. And heaven is reserved for those who've got the honesty to admit it and look to Christ. And so in this way, the real scandal of the universe is not that there's a hell that's deserved by all, but that there's a heaven which is offered to all which brings us to our final and most glorious reality of the end, the renewal of our world. Praise God that hell and judgment don't get the final word because the goal of all creation, the culmination of all God's work is the reality of heaven. If, if, if hell is the absence of the goodness of God, then heaven is the place where God's glory and His presence is experienced fully and perfectly. Um, the picture we get of heaven in Revelation 21 isn't so much souls going up to heaven, but heaven coming down to earth to restore and renew our world. In heaven, we won't just be souls floating around the air. We will be resurrected with physical bodies living in a physical world. Um, sometimes we might think of heaven in our head as just this never-ending church service that won't stop, uh, where, we, where we sing how great is our God on loop forever and ever. And then you think, man, I can't even last an hour and a half here. Uh, what chance do I have there? But no, the, actually the picture we get here is that heaven is a city where we'll continue to work and progress and enjoy creation. Heaven is a a place of no more death and decay, where our bodies won't get weaker, where we won't need to wear face masks anymore. It's a place where we don't need to say goodbye to anyone anymore. Heaven will be a city where there's no more mourning or crying or pain because even death itself has been thrown into the lake of fire. And finally, verse 2, heaven is described as a wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb between God and His bride, which are His people. Um, One of the privileges that I get as a pastor is to conduct weddings. Um, They're a lot of fun. Um, They're also a lot of work. Um, And so I can kind of appreciate how much time and thought will go into them. Um, like getting a great venue and food and cake and photographers and flowers and speeches. Um, the bride wears a beautiful white dress. Um, even the groom decides to clean himself up for once in his life and wear a suit. <laughs> you know, so much time and thought goes into the setting and the celebration and the occasion. But then you come to the day itself, And what the celebration surrounds is not how great the venue is or how good the food tastes. What really matters is the relationship. It's not the venue that creates the wedding, right? The venue only accompanies the beauty of the relationship being created and celebrated. I often uh, wonder what heaven will be like. Will there be our beloved pets, favorite sports or pastimes? But often when we think about heaven, we, we actually leave Jesus out of the picture. Um, yes, we want the world with no more sickness and death. Yes, we want no more conflict or sadness. It's great. But sometimes our longings for heaven don't really have anything to do with Jesus. Perhaps we want the nice wedding venue without the marriage itself. But actually, there's a word for a place without Jesus. Jesus. It's called hell. Now, you see, as exciting as these questions are about the new creation, ultimately what makes heaven beautiful is being with Jesus, the one who created you, the one who died for you, who rose for you and came back for you. If you don't love Jesus, you won't love heaven. Um, At the beginning, we ask the question, are you looking forward to the future? And I think one of the reasons we may not is because though we know that, yes, Jesus is coming back to judge and renew the world, it's hard to know what that'll be like. And sometimes if we're honest, it's, it's hard to conceive of a place called heaven, right? And it's an even greater struggle to be really confident that I'll make it there. I mean, I, I do a lot of good things in this life. But I do a lot of bad things as well, that I'm ashamed of. And so, ultimately, for me, I think the struggle of heaven is ultimately a struggle to believe in grace. Um, as Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them, uh, Thomas asks the logical question. He says, "Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way?" unlike other religions or worldviews, with Christianity, there's no step-by-step instructions about how to get there. There's no formula, there's no map. And so when we die or when the end comes, how will we know the way? This is what Jesus says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God doesn't provide us a map to get to heaven. He provides a person. A person who on the cross endured the full torment of hell in our place. If you're unsure about heaven, look to the cross. Because that is already your place of hell. In eternity of hell has already been paid for you. We sang Jesus paid it all. That Jesus who on the cross experienced the absence of god and endured the full wrath of god's uh, punishment of sin um, if you've ever uh, stepped off a plane um, into a foreign country uh, you don't quite know what will await you on the other side uh, you might not speak the language you're not sure how to navigate through the immigration and customs process Maybe you're not sure how you're going to get out of the airport and, and make it to your destination. But then as you step onto the other side, there's, there's someone holding up a sign. And it's, it's got your name on it. And that person guides you all the way to your destination. And so you might not be entirely certain of what the future will be like. But Jesus says, you don't need to find your way to heaven. He says, I'll bring you there. And when you get to the other side, he'll be waiting for you. Standing with the book of life, with your name written on it. And it says, welcome home. So Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that on the cross, Jesus has taken our hell in our place so that we can experience endless heaven with you. Lord, even as the future fills us sometimes with uncertainty, help us to place our confidence in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life who promises to bring us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.